1: Hello and welcome back. Here's why you need to watch today's Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. It's the final countdown for the ETH merge, the final test for a highly anticipated Ethereum upgrade has been completed. We're going to discuss how this is affecting price and what's going to change. Plus, we're going to hear from crypto hedge fund manager Jay Jenner. He talks about how his fund profited from the Luna crash, his strategy and talks about risk management. We're going to break all of that down, what he said, and give you the key takeaways. This is your show. Please send us your questions over Twitter, on the exchange, on Discord. We want to hear from you. My name is Marco Oliveira. With me today, we have, as always, Ash Bennington. Let's jump into the latest price action. So cryptocurrency, cryptocurrencies are trading firmly in the green today, following yesterday's lower-than-expected U.S. inflation reading. We've also just learned that the producer price index fell in July for the first time in two years. It measures wholesale prices, so those of final-demand goods. Crypto, of course, remains highly sensitive to macro events, so easing inflation pressures are seen as a catalyst for risk assets. Once again, we're seeing the opposite of what this Bitcoin ethos has been, namely that Bitcoin could be a good inflation hedge. So for now, lower inflation is positive for Bitcoin's price movements. We're gonna pull up this chart here. The biggest crypto, Bitcoin has hit $24,500, the highest level since mid-June. But the real, real star performer today is once again, Ethereum. It's up around 19% over the past week to go above $1,900. Industry experts point out that this could be because of positive developments ahead of the merge. And that brings us to our top story today. Ethereum's third and final testnet merge goes live on Goerly. Uh, it was the final dry run before its major upgrade. We, uh, it has successfully merged with Goerly, one of Ethereum's testnets. This is an important step as Ethereum moves from proof-of-work to proof-of-stake for securing its network. By merging successfully with this testnet, it's likely that the mainnet merge will go smoothly. At least that's what people are uh, believing. That the, and the merge is a uh, main uh, the merge with the Ethereum's main X is expected to take place in September. Ash, can you explain? Because I get a little bit tripped up when it talks about girly. What is all of that about? What's next for Ethereum as we get closer to this official merge?
0: Yeah, this stuff gets complicated. So first of all, let's talk about what the merge is, just a refresher for people who may not remember. The merge, obviously, is this transition from proof of work to proof of stake. This is a huge change in the consensus mechanism of Ethereum. It's a fundamental change in the nature of the way Ethereum works. It's going to, obviously, when we move to proof of stake, it's going to facilitate staking, it's going to facilitate yield generation, and also dramatically lower the profile uh, for carbon usage or energy usage, I should say. is a proxy for how much carbon is being burned to secure the network uh, now let's talk a little bit about girly here this is interesting first we should probably refresh people on what a test net is uh, a test net is an independent environment that's separate from the main production environment that runs with real money so effectively this is kind of a, a test environment where the developers where people who are involved in uh, the process can essentially play out some of the things that they expect to happen when it finally goes live into production. Gurley is the last of the test nets to go live. So this is seen by many as a concluding step of the testing process for that ultimate go-live date, which, as you mentioned, Marco, is in September.
1: Yeah, definitely very interesting. Uh, That brings us to other stories we're looking at today. So Ripple Labs is interested in buying assets from bankrupt crypto lender Celsius, so Reuters was reporting this, that Ripple Labs is, wants to do this. Ash, here we have two major players in the crypto space, Ripple that's looking to buy assets from Celsius, a troubled lender. And this isn't something new, though. We've seen this similar things with FTX and Nexo earlier this year. What are your thoughts on this story with Ripple and Celsius?
0: Well, first, it's interesting to me that Ripple hasn't done any major deals yet. Uh, I think I knew that, but the Reuters article I think that you're referencing refreshed my memory of this. It's very interesting. The weird thing about the volatility in this space, it forces liquidations, it forces bankruptcies, and then it rebounds. So the article uh, from Reuters mentions that Bitcoin is down 70%. From its highs on the year, that's from uh, rather from its November twenty-one highs of sixty-nine thousand. It's also up paradoxically twenty-eight percent from its lows. So that gives you a sense of what the volatility looks like in this space. Uh, uh, And and this is really ultimately what we're talking about here. So it's always the same dance on Wall Street, right? It's this dysfunctional tango between fear. And greed. Uh, so you see, asset prices decline. People want to get out of those assets. They fall to a certain level. They begin to look, uh, they begin to look more appetizing uh, when they're below a certain price, and then people want to get back in. So fear, greed, greed, fear. This cycle just continues to repeat itself. Look, Ripple sold four hundred and nine million dollars in XRP in Q two. 22. So the idea that they want to deploy some of that probably makes a lot of sense here. If they believe that these assets are mispriced, they're going to come back in on the greed side of the equation, Marco.
1: Well, speaking about dysfunctional tango, this is not the only story involving Celsius in the past 24 hours. You know, Reuters is also reporting that the U.S. Department of Justice has dem- demanded more insight into Celsius' bankruptcy process. Ash, what are they worried about?
0: Well, you know, this is this is an interesting question. Uh, it seems as though what their concern is, is that, um, and, and I'm just going to speak generally here, and none of this should be taken specifically, but in this particular case, you would think that what a regulator would be worried about would be the, uh, the, the bankrupt- Entity trying to dilute assets to themselves, meaning you have general creditors who, in this case, include uh, what you would roughly probably call depositors in the Celsius protocol. And the fear would be, hey, they're going to sell off some of these assets and they're going to pay them out. I think in severance packages was one of the things that was mentioned in this uh, in this wire story. So that's the that's the general concern and probably why they're seeking more information. Yet again, no allegations uh, of wrongdoing here, but that that seems to be a, a plausible scenario based on the fact pattern that we're aware of at this time, Marco.
1: Yeah, you know, Ash, you you mentioned selling assets, and that kind of brings me to the next thing that I heard about Celsius. You know, on Twitter, it's like rumbling around. There's reports that Alex Mashinsky, the CEO, he sold some of his holdings. And then on top of that, we've seen wild movements in the price of Celsius's token. It's up around 18% today alone. What's going on here? This is something that our viewers have flagged.
0: Yeah, so there are probably two separate stories there. Um, there, there's a report that Alex Mashinsky sold uh, some Celsius tokens. It's not confirmed. We should talk a little bit about where these reports come from. So effectively, these are chain analysis firms that uh, tend to, uh, that basically, they go through and they look at wallet activity, uh, and they, based on that activity, believe that a wallet is associated with a particular person or entity. We don't know that. That's not confirmed. This is just speculative. I believe it's a rather small number of coins, I think something in the order of $28,000, uh, which in the grand scheme of things is re- relatively small. Uh, But again, this isn't confirmed. This is what a chain analysis type uh, of firm, on-chain analytics firm, is saying, that they believe that the wallet associated with the sale may belong to Alex Mashinsky. Again, unconfirmed. We'll find out more in the future. Uh, On the other point, we know a little bit more, which is the rise in price uh, for the sell token. There's a lot of talk here about a short squeeze. A short squeeze is when you have shorts getting squeezed out by upward price action. So what's happening here is pretty interesting. There's a story on Reddit that basically looks like the uh, Wall Street bets kinds of folks are doing something similar right now with the sell token, as we saw on, for example, GameStop. Uh, This is obviously a story that we we reported on extensively uh, a while ago, and that was the big news. And so we're Potentially here, seeing this thing again, this organized effort uh, to come in and and buy the uh, buy the sell token. It's obviously surged dramatically in price uh, since the lows. I think it was trading as at around fifteen cents. I'm looking right now on my screen, uh, trading at about uh, two dollars and thirty eight cents. So whatever that is, like a sevenfold increase from where it was. A considerable move, Marco.
1: Yeah, well, I have to give the thanks to Fred and on our Real Vision website for flagging this angle. It's really an important angle to cover. Uh, on to our next story here. Coinbase can't seem to catch a break. Coinbase is under SEC scrutiny over its crypto staking uh, programs. This, the popular exchange re- received investigative subpoenas from the SEC and other regulators over its crypto yield and staking products. Man, Ash, when it rains, it pours. Just yesterday, we covered Coinbase's revenue loss of over a billion dollars. This is on top of the news of the layoffs, on top of the news of multiple other investigations going around. What do you make of the SEC poking around here? What are your thoughts?
0: Uh, Well, first, let me just say, I'm looking at the chart right now, and it's up about uh, 3% on the day, trading around, looks like 97, 96, 98 on my screen. Uh, So apparently, there's not been uh, any cascade down effects on this. Look, it's a lot of stuff. Uh, I went and I read that section of the quarterly report. It says that Coinbase has uh, received, as you said, investigative subpoenas from SEC and similar subpoenas from other state regulators. I read that entire section of the report. And look, it is extensive. Uh, The CoinDesk headline on this story, uh, CoinDesk, not Coinbase, but the CoinDesk headline on this story uh, is that... Uh, it's about staking and yield. I think it's broader than that. Let me read some of this language here, just because I think it's important for people to get some insight on what's actually in the report. Quote: For documents, this is what the subpoena uh, is seeking. Quote: For documents and information about certain of our customer programs, operations, and intended future products, including our stablecoin and yield generating products. So it's not explicitly limited to that, which I think is an important point for people to understand. It, Also important to add here, this is what you do in a quarterly filing. You go out and you disclose things and you wanna disclose things in a way that is, uh, let's say maximally impactful. In other words, you wanna make sure that any bad news that you have, you get out there because you don't want the liability of saying you didn't communicate to the shareholders Properly about the things that were happening. So, if there's something negative, you just want to get it out. It's almost like in an S1 document where you see every potential risk under the sun listed. That's typically what happens in these types of situations. Uh, you know, for me, when I read that language, it sounds like regulators are really just trying to get their head around what these products are about. When you hear uh, SEC, you have to think. Immediately, at least I think that a big chunk of what they're wondering here is the the, the most basic and fundamental age-old question in crypto, which is this: Is it a security? Uh, this gets back to stories uh, to talk about the Howey test. Is this are, are these products that Coin, uh, Coinbase is listing? Uh, Considered securities by SEC, and so when you mention when you mention the subpoena, uh, that's sort of what I think of, just generally speaking on this story. So there's there's a lot of stuff going on here, uh, and. And you know, I, I, you have to believe on the staking side that what happened with Celsius and what happened with some of the other yield generating plays that it's getting a lot of attention right now from regulators because of because of those considerable failures that we've seen here over the last few months. My own take on this is that if something looks like a banking product, it walks like a banking product, it talks like a banking product. They're probably ultimately going to get regulated like a banking product, and I think that that's that's at least my, my broad take on what's happening uh, in. The staking uh, field. Ultimately, I think regulations start to get harmonized over time so that when you have crypto lenders that are offering yield generation, uh, it probably looks a lot more like the way banking products are being regulated when people are making deposits, for example, in a CD. Um, but that's just my my general take. As I said, it's a lot of stuff and it's tough to tease through all of those sub points, Marco. At Evernorth Health Services,
1: No, yeah, it's definitely a lot of stuff. I mean, when you say SEC, is it just security? I get, I get PTSD here. Uh, you know, a lot of people on the Twitter space, it's something that it's, a, it's an important topic that, that is discussed quite often. And, but moving on to a different topic, back to Ethereum merge, right? It reminds us a lot about crypto's appeal. It's, it's this hope and expectation. And many of the guests we bring on to our show, they really believe in it. And we have this clip here with Jay Janner. He's the head of a quantitative investment at KPTL. He's a former trader at Morgan Stanley, Lloyd's Bank. We came across him in a Financial Times article. He's one of the few hedge funds that was profiting during the Luna collapse. You know, the Luna collapse were over $40 billion in market cap evaporate over a few weeks. What was interesting to me is that even though he's the head of a fund that trades cryptos, his thoughts on crypto and decentralization might surprise our viewers. Let's take a listen.
2: I I still um, sort of disagree with my son about something fundamental. My son believes that decentralized uh, databases and blockchains is the future of humanity. Um, I am, I'm an old guy, I'm 65. So I'm much more skeptical about lots of things. And I agree that that decentralized, you know, and blockchains and all of this will be important and so on. I don't think we quite understand how, but there is a fundamental problem with coins, with crypto coins, in that you don't own a security. You do not own a piece of the action. You do not have a dividend yield. You do not have a percent of a company. You cannot analyze, I don't know, the protocol that 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 it, for which that coin was generated, for example, ether for Ethereum. Ethereum is a wonderful operating system for, for you know, uh, protocol, et cetera, but you're not an owner of Ethereum. You have a coin called ether, which will be used in that ec- ecosystem. So it's the utility value of that coin, but that's incredibly hard to value as, a, mm. as an asset. So therefore, I believe that the volatility is here to stay for, for a long time and it's and I believe it's gonna be traded emotionally hmm. forever. I mean I, I don't see how it's gonna change. So emotional trading makes for very nice modeling. Unlike unlike um uh you know regular assets. Regular assets you really should get your stuff together, understand what information is, you know. You know, what the Fed is doing, what it dividends are, what this company is doing, what that and this and the other. You should have to correlate everything and in your head, and then coming up with a model to 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 sort of to trend follow that is it's, it's
0: a little far-fetched. While this is really fascinating, Jay, because it's a different take. Many of our guests say that they see the crypto asset space beginning to mature uh, over the years to come, that eventually we're going to see something that looks more like a traditional capital markets model. But you're saying, in your view, no. In fact, you, you're a bit skeptical of that idea. You suspect that the volatility is here to stay because of the fundamental nature of what the claim on the asset itself is. Exactly.
2: It, it is nothing more than a coin uh, you know, fiat coin dollar against euro. Well, dollar against euro. There is a lot of fundamental you can talk about why it's worth you know practically one to two. And, and you can you there is some emotional part to it, but essentially you have to know the economies of the United States, economies of Europe, et cetera, and then you have to know the, the 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 you know the purchasing parity, the economics of it, and all that other stuff. Um, but you know what makes Bitcoin be worth ten thousand and not one thousand or what a hundred thousand? And why is it now worth only ten thousand and or twenty thousand, whatever it is? I mean, all of that is 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 depends depends of if money leaves the system, comes into the system, if it correlates to Nasdaq. Nowadays, it's correlating to Nasdaq. That wasn't was the case. Right. You know, that wasn't the case, etc. So, you know, I think I think you're pulling straws if you believe that you can come up with a model of value for coins. And I don't think. I don't think if Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or any of these guys start trading this stuff with big money, it's going to all of a sudden find its true value or reduce volatility. I think if they're just going to be those crazy guys in the corner trading that's weird stuff. Um, and, 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 and so I, I disagree. I, I think they, they do have value, but it's a, a different kind of asset. It's an asset that didn't exist before. Because it's a kind of a utility asset, but it doesn't give you a claim to anything at all.
1: You know, Ash, it's really interesting. Uh, Jay Janner, he's talking about the security issue as well as Ethereum, tying in these two top stories today. But you know what strikes me the most? This clip actually reminds me of one of the first interviews I was sitting in and the producer, the associate producer chair at the time. It was with Airy Pine, an old school trader. It was like a really long time ago. I don't know if you remember it. But oh, yeah. there was this. Ex- yeah. yeah, And there was this exchange between the two of you. And he said something along the lines of the beautiful thing about Bitcoin and other digital assets is you don't have to believe in it to trade it. And that really stuck with me. And here we have Jay kind of saying the same thing. Ash, explain what they mean by this, this idea of trading assets, even when we're skeptical of them.
0: Well, first, great callback to Ari Pine. We should have Ari on again. That was a fantastic conversation. You know, look, he- here's the thing. I don't think that Jay disbelieves in the digital asset space. I just don't think he especially believes in it. I guess, to use a crude metaphor, uh, he's not an atheist, he's an agnostic. And and I think that's that's interesting, uh, because it makes sense. Jay is a trader. He looks at price action. He makes determinations about whether to buy and sell and how to position himself based on price action. And and I think it makes the point uh, that not everyone has to believe in this space, particularly if they're trading and they, they have a core set of trading skills that they bring to the table that they can apply from another domain. It's not necessarily... Uh, something that requires a purity test. You don't have to actually... Believe in the future of the space. You know, I'm not 100% certain that I agree that there are no fundamentals in crypto. And and by the way, that's okay. That's what that's what makes a market. That's what makes a conversation. Is people have different perspectives, and you don't really know. It's like the future is always uncertain. And so so we think about these things. I, I think there are actually plenty of fundamentals to look at in the space. Things like uh, wallet address creation, network volumes, etc. Um, so you know, he's right that this has been trading like a speculative risk asset. Crypto prices have obviously been correlated to central bank policy, correlated to liquidity. Uh, the jo- old joke about how the correlation trade goes to one—you, uh, you, you basically—you know what Bitcoin did on any given day if you know where the Nasdaq 100 finished the day because they've been—they've been so intensely correlated. Does that stay the case forever? Maybe not. But maybe you know predictions are hard, especially about the future. Uh, but what's interesting about traders is that, and the reason why I think it's so great to have folks on like Jay Janer is that they don't get caught up in all of the speculative metaphysics, right? They just are saying, "Hey, I'm looking at price. This is what's happened in the past. This is what I foresee happening in the future." You know, is any individual always right? No, of course not. But it's a valuable and interesting way to look at this asset class so that we can get some understanding uh, and we can explore what's happening in there from a different perspective, Marco.
1: Yeah, pr- predictions are definitely really hard to make. And that's why I think it's important when you're setting up trades to kind of also set the structure of your portfolio. It's kind of like a, it's another element to add that kind of takes away from having to pr- make your, your main point be the uh, predictions. And so in this next clip, you guys discuss how his fund structures the trading portfolio and what they do. Let's take a listen.
2: In in crypto land, is if there is a uh, huge bull market, speculators go into perpetuals much more than they go into cash. So the the volume of perpetual trading in in in, in crypto is double the size of cash trading. Okay, so so it's much bigger. It's it's tremendously much bigger. Uh, so all of the speculators they go into. Perpetuals, because with a lot less money, essentially you are just post collateral. You can have the same position uh, as the cash. So whenever there is a bull market, like in 20 at the end of 2020, the beginning of 21, um, these perpetuals became much more expensive than cash, which which means us arbitrageurs, people that um, try to benefit from that. What we do is we buy the cash, sell the perpetual, and keep that that difference because eventually that difference narrows down. For example, when the market turns, uh, that does narrow, goes to zero, and I'm short that spread. Uh, another thing that happens, of course, is that it's, it's, that spread is simply very volatile. So we tend to do something like two, three thousand trades a day, right? Because we're 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 essentially arbitraging that spread between the futures and cash. That's what we did in bore for we do that with ninety four percent of the of the fund the other six percent of the fund is dedicated that was put aside for collateral to put as collateral against long shorts the stuff that I had been building for my own money right for all the years before so I what I wanted to do is i I wanted to tell my friends look I tell you what a little piece of this fund will be dedicated to Long short positions, and may give you a little extra money, a little extra return. Uh, and and what happened was, for this particular fund, we made for in the seven months of of twenty uh, of uh, twenty twenty, we made eighteen percent after fees, and last year we made sixty one percent after fees with no losing months. Um, so so you know everything was is it was going fine. But uh, we're virtually zero return this year in that particular fund. Now, you may ask, oh, that's crazy. How how did that happen? Well, the since November, we've had a crash in crypto or some people call it a crypto winter because it's actually a slow, painful ca- crash that's taken eight months. Um, and what happened there is that the, the futures they collapse to cash, or they become even negative to cash, because, as you can imagine, speculators start going the other way, and 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 um, and so that trade of buying cash and selling futures is no longer profitable, because the futures become negative. So most of our position is in cash. We don't we're not virtually positioned anymore. Ninety six percent of the portfolio waiting for the market to stabilize, because this particular drop in the markets, and by the way, it's not only in the crypto markets as we know well, um, is just, we're just waiting it for it to stop. Uh, when it stabilizes, perhaps it comes back up and so on. That's when hopefully these spreads will normalize, come back to being normally what they are, which is positive and et cetera.
1: Ash, there's a lot to unpack there in that clip. Jay mentioned that 94% of the fund is dedicated to arbitrage in the spread between perpetual futures in the cash market. Why don't we start there? For those who don't know what perpetual futures are, give us the basics, break down this arbitraging idea.
0: Yeah. So perpetual futures, also known as perpetual swaps, they're a derivatives instrument. They're very similar to traditional futures, except they don't have an expiry date, hence the perpetual. Uh, So they just continue, and you can continue to hold them. So it's an easier way for investors to get longer term exposure from a derivatives position to an underlying asset. Why would you want to own perpetual swaps instead of the underlying? Uh, Mostly it's because of the capacity to lever up the position. Because these are synthetic, they're not relying on anyone holding the underlying. Uh, So uh, as Jay said, they are larger than the cash market, I think he says by a factor of two, because of the leverage, and he, he alludes directly to that in that clip. So so what does he do is the second question here. So this is an arbitrage strategy that relies on price differentials between the cash market and the uh, the futures market. So perpetuals become more expensive than cash. There's higher demand that drives up the price. You get this contango situation where you have the future uh, price being higher than the current spot. The opposite is backwardation. Uh, So what arbitragers are doing and what Jay is doing in this particular case is he's buying the cash position, while simultaneously selling the perpetuals position. Eventually, they converge. Uh, since crypto winter, uh, they collapsed cash, meaning that spread eventually went negative. That's the game that he's playing, Marco.
1: Yeah, definitely went negative. I mean, he said that uh, he's 96% in cash, which I actually also found really interesting. But I, I wanted to ask you something else that he mentioned that really stood out to me. Is He said he's doing two to 3,000 trades a day. Do you need like a program or an algorithm to run this type of trade?
0: Well, to do two to, uh, two, two to 3,000 trades a day, you would certainly need a program. But the underlying strategies don't actually require uh, any type of algorithmic trading. You can put these positions on manually so that you can, you can for example, buy the cash and sell perpetual uh, simultaneously, just just manually. So that doesn't require a computer to do. But it's important to, to, to note precisely, as you say, that went negative, meaning they are currently uh, in backwardation. In fact, uh, it's the deepest backwardation uh, since 2020 right now, meaning that inversion of that future curve, you see the, the spot uh, considerably uh, above where the perpetual or the future price is.
1: Well, even though the, that, that trade went negative, he mentioned there was an, another 6% of the trade, which he uses for collateral on the long shorts. I believe that's how he structured his Luna trade. So this next clip here is Jay explaining the Luna trade. We mentioned here at the top of the show that he profited uh, off the Luna trade. It was in the Financial Times article. Let's hear what he has to say about it.
2: Look, my formula simply saw that Terra was beginning to tank. Uh, well, Luna was beginning to tank um, before we, we don't trade uh, but by, by definition we don't trade stable coins okay so we're not involved with stable coin trading or market making or anything like that so Terra itself was not the the uh, the you know we didn't think we didn't know that Terra would would all of a sudden collapse and, and lose its peg uh, you know UST but but we certainly uh saw my models were obviously detecting that Luna itself was beginning to lose to to lose value was beginning to go bare and was short so when UST lost its peg Luna c- collapsed we were short it's as simple as that and 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 then there was a you know for every trade um that we have on we have stop losses and we have profit goals uh, and, and we had, I think it was a 65% profit goal, profit goal for that short. And it, it, it happened in about two days. Uh, so we, we got there and we got out. That's as simple as that. But you know, I, I think the, the, the part that maybe, I don't know if they, I mean, I, I didn't mean to say that we made millions of dollars in that particular trade. It was just a very successful trade. Uh, but, you know, we've had lots of very successful trades in either way, bulls and bear situations. Uh, we made a lot of good money in the crash of last year, for example. There was a mini crash, mini, not so many, actually a 50% crash in two weeks in May of last year. We made some good money there. And what was uh, the strategy
0: that you used during that crash? Was it simply trend following uh, or was there something else that you guys were doing to profit from that downturn in asset two things, prices? Yeah.
2: Yeah, so there, there it was trend following in the long shorts, uh, as usual, and, um, and, the, and and we, as I, I was saying before, we are short the spread, meaning we're long the, the, the coin and short the futures, right? And in a collapse, when a market collapses fast, the futures tends to go down faster than cash. Why? Because all the speculators get out, right? And there are more speculators in the futures than there are in the cash. The volume is double, as I said. So, so they got out first, and then the hedgers come in, and they hedge, and they go down. So the the spreads went from being positive to being negative, and we were short that spread. So, so we made money in both situations, in the spread trading as well as in being short the long short.
1: Ash, something that really struck me here is Jay mentions that a, he's following a trend-following strategy in the long shorts. Can you break down what trend following means, what this strategy is? What kind of indicators typically are associated with that type of strategy? Well,
0: there's an old joke that there are only two types of trading strategies. Uh, the first is mean reversion, which means that when you see outperformance on a particular asset or underperformance on a particular asset, it will ultimately converge back to its traditional pattern. Uh, and the second uh, is trend following. Trend following, if you want the short description of it, it's the old Wall Street joke. Why did you buy the stock? Well, I bought it because the price went up. Uh, so trend following is basically coming in uh, and and uh, and and if and following uh, what you see as a trend. You can see this on any number of tech indicators. Typically, people look at moving averages. When you see wild breakouts above moving averages, it's a signal uh, that folks are piling into that trade. uh, And then other folks will follow. Now, it gets a lot more complicated than that, obviously. Uh, You can bring in things like algorithms to pick entries and exit prices. People use things like VWAP. Uh, That's the volume-weighted average price to think about where they get in and out of uh, positions on a tactical level. But he also uh, mentioned this spread trade, which I think is important for people to understand. We talked about it a little bit during the last break. But the idea here is you're long the coin and you're short the future. So futures, uh, perpetual swaps, as he said, decline faster than the cash position because the speculators want to exit those trades quickly. So when you have that two legs of the trade, long the coin, short the future, uh, the spread effectively tightens. This is sometimes called a tightener trade. uh, And Jay makes money when that happens and things move in his direction, Marco.
1: Yeah, you know, I think it's funny when you said trend following, I bought it because the price went up. And that just, like, I think of, like, all the people on Twitter, you know, trading, number go up. And that, a lot of people sometimes do that. They trade because, just simply because the number goes up. And I think that this next clip is really important because that's kind of a dangerous strategy. You want to, you know, make sure that you're putting proper risk control and risk management techniques in place. Let's take a listen to what uh, Jay has to say about that.
2: What I've learned is that you... You need to have a, you need to be well in control of the risk. You need to be um, r- really understand the gamble that you're that you're running. Uh, you may have a good formula, you may have a good idea, and so on and so forth, but you don't want to lose your capital and and be out of the market, right? So th- it's all about risk control. It's all about you know having stops, having profit goals, having understanding that we're talking about assets with volatility of over hundred percent, um and 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 being incredibly systematic and cold and, and clo cold blooded about the way you trade. That uh, so how I, do you do it,
0: that, Jay, at the fund?
2: Oh we do it we do it systematically, right? I mean we do it automatically. We don't we don't mess with I mean we change, we tweak the formulas over time, but we don't um you know, we have certain ratios of of risk to you know. We aim at a volatility, right? We aim at a certain volatility in the fund. In the case of, of bore, uh, the we want it below ten percent volatility. So you you gauge all of your all of your notional that you're trading according to that, and it's it's really as a simple as simple as that. And what you and want, how do you you're...
0: target it in terms of the uh, in terms of the execution?
2: Well, you 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 do all kinds of statistical analysis uh, of the past and then as as you start to execute you 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 adju- you make sure you adjust your notional so that that's what you're getting in in terms of volatility and of course there will be months where where things go more crazy than that and then you have to adjust down the notional so you do have a dial on the notional and and that that is critical because you don't wanna lose control of your risk. You don't wanna have a big drawdown. You, you, and, and I think, I personally think in general in life, people that have big drawdowns and are out, what they're doing is they're handing their money over to the professionals. That, that's essentially what happens around the, the world of <laughs> trading in general. It's, it's the people that can't, that can't stand the drawdown. Uh, can't stand the losses that leave the money on the table. To who? To the people that, that are controlling the risk.
1: Ash, as Jay talks about risk control, I'm reminded of a few horror stories I've heard. A few of them, you know, people were actually in profit earlier in the trade, but because they didn't have proper take profit points in place, the trade eventually turned against them. There's been other stories I've heard where traders had no stop losses in place and they invested too much, got wiped out completely. Ash, for the viewers out there, explain the importance of risk management and describe some common risk management techniques that traders typically use.
0: Well, it's really interesting. Uh, Jay begins by saying, you need to be well in control of the risk. And then he states it even more nakedly. You need to really understand the gamble that you're running. That's a classic sort of trader perspective on the world. You know, some risk management techniques, and obviously we don't have time to talk about them in detail here today, uh, but things like stop loss and take profit orders, meaning uh, when you fall below a certain level, you automatically begin to liquidate the position programmatically based on a limit order that's been placed in the system. Portfolio diversification, of course, maintaining cash buffers. Uh, The point here is that these are really critical things for people to understand, particularly uh, professional investors uh, and traders, uh, let's just say on other financial news networks, often don't talk about this stuff because they get them on and they say, like, what was the trade? And and it isn't glamorous, right? It isn't the most uh, sort of like sexy thing to talk about. But this is absolutely critical. One of the things that I love about what we do here at Real Vision is we talk to the best traders and investors in the world. Uh, many of them have been on our air. We've talked to them extensively. And it's not just about the, the kind of glamorous headline question that everyone wants to know the answer to. How would you get this trade idea? Well, you know, when you talk to them and you listen to how they knew, the nuance of how they structure trades, how they think about risk, uh, I think in many ways that's the key to the success of many of the greatest traders and investors we've had here on Real Vision, Marco.
1: Yeah, Ash, I mean, that's definitely the key to success for a lot of traders and being able to point that out. Like you said, it isn't it isn't glamorous, but it's critical. Ash, you were able really to extract so much of the important information out of this interview. And I learned a lot today. I feel like this is what the viewers can take away from your conversation with Jay. You know, first, we you know, Jay expressed his skepticism towards digital assets. He's trading them. Like you mentioned, he's agnostic. Uh, you broke down the fundamentals. You see like wallet address creation, network volumes, and I actually agree that those are some fundamental things to pay attention to. But at the same time, you know, just being open-minded and trading is a, is a good thing for the industry as uh, in, in general. So you also talked about trading the spreads between perpetual futures and notionals. You gave us the 101 lesson on perpetuals and arbitrage. I a lot of information there to deep dive. I'm going to have to watch this again. Uh, we also discussed Jay's trend following strategy that he used to profit from the Luna cra- uh, the Luna crash. You broke down what trend following is, the type of indicators associated with the strategy. And finally, you and Jay both stressed the importance of risk control and risk management. You know, the thing about crypto is it's one of the few places where novice traders can compete with sophisticated traders regularly. And risk management is crucial to surviving and thriving in that type of environment. Uh, like you said, it might not be glamorous, but they're critical. Uh, so on to the last segment of our show, viewer questions. Here's the first one from Fred N on the Real Vision website: How is a cell token, which is locked up if you hold it at Celsius, like like I do, being traded? Where are these trades happening?
0: Yeah, so this is a great question. So first, let's talk a little bit about what's happened at Celsius. These they have effectively gated withdrawals and other transactions, meaning they are not making redemptions on outstanding claims. However, these tokens are still being traded uh in the secondary market. I think we have a chart here we can see uh real quick. This is the uh sell ETH pair volume that we see on Uniswap. This is obviously a dex, a decentralized exchange. So, you know, you can effectively have the tokens trading freely even when there's been a redemption freeze by the issuing entity. I hope that helps, Fred.
1: Yeah, definitely. I see there's a lot a, a good bit of volume there. 206 Thousand. You can also trade it on One Inch and other places as well. So it's a very interesting que- question. Thanks for the question, Fred. Uh, on to the next question from VS. This comes off the RV Real Vision website. Please describe the yield in ETH very simply, Ash.
0: Yes, it's a great question. Uh, the challenge, obviously, here is very simply. So the idea here in proof of stake is that individual holders of Ethereum can effectively lock their ETH up uh, and generate a, a yield by having it locked, so that you have effectively this this, cha- this difference between. The, uh, the, the cash price and the future price, that's how you get your yield curve. It's a different methodology for securing the chain from what we have, for example, on Bitcoin and Ethereum today even, which is still based on proof of work. So it's a, a really fundamental change in the way that the asset gets secured on the network and that translates into yield generation. I hope that helps.
1: Yeah, no, it definitely helps. Uh, the next question we have here is from Crypto the Only on YouTube what could cause the crypto and stock correlation to change? And the same with Ethereum and Bitcoin, could they ever decouple?
0: Great questions, Crypto the Only. And uh, let me let me take them each in turn. So what could cause crypto and stock correlation to change? You know, this is a really interesting question. I actually just spoke with Mark Yusko yesterday uh, from Morgan Creek, one of the great hedge fund managers in the space. And he made this important point about thinking about Bitcoin prices, in fact, all digital asset prices. And what he said is you have to remember, when we talk about Bitcoin going up, Bitcoin going down, you're talking about it in US dollars. So the base unit that you're thinking about these currencies in, obviously, is a hugely important part of understanding price. So why do I bring this base unit thing up when the question is about correlation uh, to equity markets? The answer is because what we're seeing right now is this liquidity-driven trade in crypto, when you see the price of uh, when you see the price of crypto rise, or let me say take it the other way around, when you see central banks expanding their monetary policy, when you see them becoming more accommodative, you see the prices rise because there's more liquidity flowing into the system. And the converse, when you see central banks tightening, which is the cycle that we're in right now, when you see central banks tightening, you see prices decline. Then, when we have things come out like CPI prints, for example, uh, yesterday, and PPI print today, you have changes in the price of risk assets and digital risk assets, because there's the expectation of future change from central banks. So when you had, for example, uh, the CPI print coming out cooler than it had the prior month in July, what you saw was a rise in uh, digital asset prices. That's because investors are speculating that, okay, the Fed is not going to have to clamp down liquidity and raise like 100 basis points next time, because inflation is totally out of control. So this correlation really is about what's happening right now through the uh, central bank transmission mechanism. So how could this change? Uh, How could that correlation break down? Well. If, for example, many Bitcoiners have always made the case that that Bitcoin is an asset that they're very passionate about because it's off the grid and it it has central banks have less ability to dilute it. Now, I know we've just made the counter case, but in their thesis, which is very different from what we've seen to date, which doesn't mean that it can't happen in the future, is if you have an an event, for example, uh, hyperinflation over a period of time, you may have Bitcoin specifically being a store of value function asset, meaning people want to run away, in their view, in the Bitcoiners' view, from the US dollar uh, into Bitcoin because it's not subject to central bank dilution. We haven't seen that yet, but again, the question is what could cause this decoupling at some point in the future. Uh, So Ethereum and Bitcoin, could they ever decouple? Sure, absolutely, why not? Uh, Story specific to either one of those protocols. For example, I'll I'll give you a hypothetical. This is not the case. It's just a a counterfactual for a thought experiment. But if when the uh, Gurley transition took place on testnet, if there was a significant problem involved in uh, in that transition, if something came out in the test net that made it look as though the transition to proof of stake was problematic, it probably would have been likely that you would have seen a decline in the in the Ethereum price when that happened. Now, if on the same day you had positive news on inflation, you could see you know you could see the uh, central bank trade in Bitcoin drive the price higher, so you could have that divergence between Bitcoin and Ethereum.
1: You know, Ash, as you mentioned, this Ethereum and their, you know, the test with Gorlin, the transition from proof of work to proof of stake, that actually brings us perfectly to our next question from Crypto J from the Real Vision website. He, he's asking, how do you assess the prospects of an ETH proof of work fork? What, what are your thoughts there?
0: You know, it's an open question at this point. You, you, read, you read about the the I think Justin Sun was talking about so the potential for a hard fork here. Uh, we we really don't know. This is one of these really challenging things and, and trying to assess it. Let me just give this sort of general commentary about how how I think about about this process more more broadly. And this is a this is a very specific question, but I, I want to give a little bit of general context here. So the general assumption that most folks in the space seem to be making, based on the price action is that the this the test scenarios have gone extremely well for the Ethereum merge, the transition from proof of work to proof of stake. Uh, you know, look, we have some of the smartest minds, literally the most brilliant people on the planet in the digital uh, asset ecosystem in cryptocurrency working on figuring out this merge. So there's this, this broad sense of, I think, uh, you know, feeling of optimism around how well this transition is going. It's been likened to changing the jet engines on a plane at 50,000 feet in terms of the level of complexity of the engineering to do this into a mainnet while the protocol is still running. You know, my feeling on this is while there are certainly very positive signs and you do have many of the most brilliant minds In the space working on it, there's still uncertainty. This has never been done before. And when I look at the price action, I don't see uncertainty. I see complacency. That's not suggesting that there's going to be a catastrophic failure in September uh, if the merge happens on that date. I'm just saying, look, we just don't know how this is going to work at scale when there are huge Hundreds of billions of dollars behind this. Things may look a little bit different than they do in the testnet. In my view, at least, uh, I think we see a little bit more complacency. And I don't usually give opinions on this kind of stuff, but I, I just—it it just feels to me like the trade has been in one direction. Every time something happens, every time there's a there's a milestone that's met along that transition schedule to uh, to uh, proof of stake, everyone comes out and celebrates and their champagne corks and the price goes up and i i just wonder hey listen maybe the odds are are 50 50 basis points one half of 1% that there's a negative impact i just don't think that you can you can totally eliminate that you get into this question of you know what happens when you have high impact low probability events they're very difficult to price uh, things like for example uh, the risk of hurricanes to insurance companies in in traditional stock markets so we're just going to have to wait and see on all of those things, and there really are no certain answers that one can give now uh, on either the this specific question about the the proof-of-work fork. Uh, we already have Ethereum Classic, so I guess if you're interested in that, there's already a, a way to participate in it. But, you know, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of unanswered questions. Right now, I think it's reasonable to say that the price action in the space is suggesting uh, that uh, that investors are really shrugging off those concerns. Maybe that's something that should make you think.
1: Yeah. And as you mentioned, you know, we already have Ethereum Classic. And, you know, even if we did have a proof of work fork, I mean, is there any there's no indication that it'd be successful? Would developers transition to it? You know, there's a lot of questions there. So definitely something that we have to keep an eye on. Uh, but maybe something that we can answer in the future and have a great guest on on the show and right and
0: listen by the way we've already seen this with Bitcoin we, you have things like psV yeah. so we, we we saw those uh, I remember during the 2017 uh, cycle I was covering this over at uh, over at coindesk and I and I remember exactly these conversations uh, and uh, if you do have a hard fork look you can you can you can have a fork if some group of, of miners or validators uh, in the ecosystem decide to transition that doesn't mean that, that it's a catastrophic failure of the underlying protocol I, I remember this very well during the block size wars. If uh, you're interested Google block size wars on Bitcoin, you can get a little bit of context. And the bottom line is, uh, here we are in 2022, and Bitcoin, the main uh, protocol, is still chugging along.
1: Exactly. So who knows? I guess TBD. Uh, well, You know, Ash, thanks for a great show. That's it for today's show, everybody. We have a great episode of Ryle's Adventures in Crypto coming out tomorrow. Uh, Ryle sits down with Ben Mesrick. Ben Mesrick is a best-selling author, screenwriter, founder of the Ben Mesrick NFT project. His work, you can see his work in movies such as 21, The Social Network. They talk about the collapse of legacy media, creating narratives in this wild and crazy world of Web3, and how NFTs might flip the film industry on its head. It's an episode you don't want to miss. See you next week live on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing.